You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It turns out that your future wage income is probably the most important economic resource that you have, at least if you are reasonably young and of working age. And that's just kind of vastly bigger than any financial savings that most people have. And that wage income stream is actually pretty safe compared to the stock market. And that means that if you're young, you have a lot of wage payments left in your life going forward. And that is going to cushion you against any losses that you have in your financial portfolio. To the self-made and the self-sufficient, our partner Edelman Financial Engines can tailor investment solutions for the wealth that you're building. As a Her Money listener, you'll get a complimentary financial plan when you call 833-304-PLAN or visit planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. I'm very excited for this show today. It's going to be a little bit different, maybe a little bit meta, because today we're not just talking personal finance. We're talking personal finance advice, what people say about how to manage your money and whether that advice is actually right for you. If you have been listening to this show for a while, you know we talk to guests from all different walks of life, and it's always been a goal of mine to have every one of those guests give us the best insights that they've learned about money over the course of their lives. We have talked to professors and finance experts who dig deep in the data. You know I love the data. But we also talk to entrepreneurs, thought leaders, side hustlers, and politicians, people who are speaking from their own on-the-ground experiences with money. I Personally, I love both the analytical side and the human side of money, but they sometimes don't agree with each other. When it comes to our finances, the question becomes, when does it make sense to listen to the data? And when might our gut instincts or life experiences matter more? How do we find that balance? My guest today put all of those questions to the test. James Choi is a professor of finance at Yale University, where his research focuses on behavioral finance, behavioral economics, household finance, capital markets, health economics, and sociology. He is also the co-director of the Retirement and Disability Research Center at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And his newest research paper titled Popular Personal Finance Advice Versus the Professors Caught My Eye. James read the 50, 50, 50 most popular personal finance books on Goodreads and compared the advice they gave to what economists actually tell people to do with their money, and he found a lot of differences. Hey, James, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So you have been studying finance and teaching finance for decades at this point, right? You're very rooted in economic theory. What made you want to look at books about money that were targeted toward everyday Americans? And tell me about some of the books that you read and what you thought. The genesis of this whole project was when I started teaching a personal finance course at Yale. 
and I was looking for a textbook, just like any professor would, to kick off this course. And I thought it might make sense to look at some of these popular books that are out in the market, because obviously there are a ton of books that are aimed at this market segment. Lots of people are interested in knowing how to manage their personal finances better. So I looked at a few of these books and immediately I thought, wow, some of the stuff that they are telling their readers to do is pretty different from what economists would tell readers to do. And frankly, there are some things in there that I thought were just factually wrong. Now, I had to get the course together. The semester was approaching, and so I only looked at a handful of those books. But the thought kind of stayed in my mind. Wouldn't it be fun and interesting and illuminating to do a more systematic survey of what a bunch of these books are telling their readers? And so that's where this 50 most popular personal financial advice books paper came in, where indeed I did look at those top 50 books and try to compare what they said compared to what I would tell my students to do. Which books did you read? Were any of mine on that list? Sadly, Goodreads users have poor taste and I did not find any book <laughs> by you. Now you are competing against kind of the past century of books. So the oldest book in that list was, I think, from 1926. So it's really looking at the greatest hits of all time, the most popular hits of all time, so to speak, according to you know what these Goodreads users have on their virtual bookshelves. We're going to work on getting you onto that list, Gene. Okay. All right. Had you ever read any of these books before just for your own personal finance well-being? Not for my own personal finance well-being because I have fairly strong opinions of my own on what to do. So I was not in the market to find advice for myself. For my own course, I did end up using personal finance for dummies as the main text. It's good old Eric Tyson. Yeah. Yeah. It's a surprisingly good book despite its title. And let me just be clear that there are many things that Eric Tyson writes in that book that I disagree with and I think are incorrect. Nonetheless, I think it's a pretty reasonable book. And also Eric Tyson is a Yale College alum, so you know there's a little bit of school loyalty there as well. All right, what were the biggest differences you found between what the economic research was saying and what these personal finance books were saying? And we can take this topic by topic, if you like. I mean, maybe I usually think of personal finance in buckets, right? We talk about saving, investing, debt, insurance, and maybe a protection plan of some sort. So let's talk through topic by topic. When we're talking about saving, what advice were these books giving and what does The Economist say? I do think that the differences between economists and these popular authors is probably most significant in the savings domain. I thought that it had the most potential impact on readers' welfare, because there is a very different sort of philosophy that the popular authors come from uh, relative to the economists. So what would economists say? Economists say, well, you know, the second slice of pizza is never as enjoyable as the first slice of pizza, and the third slice of pizza is never as enjoyable as the second slice of pizza, and so on and so forth. And by the 10th slice of pizza, it's just disgusting, and, and it's actually giving you negative happiness to eat the 10th slice of pizza. So how does that apply to our spending? Economists would say, well, instead of really scrimping and struggling and just depriving yourself in one year, 
and overindulging the next year, life is just much more pleasant if you consume a similar moderate amount in both years. So we call that consumption smoothing. You smooth out over time the amount of money you're spending on yourself. So what does that mean for savings rates? Well, for most of us in our 20s, our income is relatively low compared to where it's going to be over the course of our lifetime. And in our 40s and our 50s, we tend to be in our peak earnings years. So economists would say, look, if you want a fairly similar level of expenditure for yourself in your 20s and your 40s, you should not actually save all that much in your 20s, and you should be a super saver in your 40s. Now, what the popular authors would say is, no, what's really important is for you to save 10 to 15% of your income consistently through thick or thin. And that means that in your 20s, actually, you're going to live at a considerably lower standard of living than in your 40s and 50s. So it's a very different kind of approach. So I'm going to sort of tee up the advice that I typically give as we have this conversation, because I'd love you to poke some holes in it if you feel like it's necessary. Our listeners, you know, trust me for the advice that they're getting with their money, and I want to make sure that they're hearing the right things. I try to get people to that 15% rate as well, while acknowledging that if you are not there, you can't get yourself there overnight that you're better off sort of nudging your way there. But simultaneously, capturing that 401k match is really paramount. Thoughts? Yeah, so I think that certainly the 401k match is pretty attractive. And so if you are in a position where you think you can contribute enough to your 401k to capture that maximum employer match without depriving yourself too much while you're in your 20s and you're income is relatively low and you know you don't feel that it's a, a super hardship, then I think by all means, you should go for it. But on the other hand, I think that economists would say that if you feel like in your 20s, you have a plan that you can kind of see that path where in your late 30s and your 40s, you're going to really turn on the savings jets and save much more than 15%, you save 25%, 30% of your income even, in those later years and really turn on those savings jets, then I think that we'd say it could be okay for you to do that. Now, I think that where the popular authors and where you have a real valid kind of point is that maybe human nature doesn't work that way. Maybe what you need to do is to develop a discipline of saving. You need to kind of build that virtue of saving. You save and you become the type of person who can be frugal, who can live within their means. And so maybe it actually does make sense to be saving consistently over time, even though on some measures, your life is going to be more difficult, especially when you're younger. Or saving consistently over time, even if you can't get yourself to that 15% rate when you're in your 20s and you're struggling with your student loans and other expenses like rent which have just gone sky high recently, that if you can save a little bit, you build that habit of saving. And that is similarly important. Let's talk about debt repayment. I have a very strong bias for the avalanche method over the snowball method, because I think that's how you pay off your debts cheapest and fastest. But I'm interested in what economists say and what you found in the personal finance literature. Well, the economists are 100% with you, Gene. The math is hard to argue with, that if you want to pay off your debt 
most cheaply and have the most money left over to spend on yourself, you should use the debt avalanche method. You should prioritize those highest interest debts that you have. But if you look at the books in my sample of 50, they're almost exactly split in the middle as to whether they advocate the debt avalanche method or the debt snowball method where you're focusing on the smallest balance debts. And really the theory behind the debt snowball method is that you just need these quick wins that if you can zero out those debt balances one by one, then you're going to get the psychological boost that's going to allow you to keep on with your debt repayment plan. Now, what I've never seen, and what I would love to see is a real head-to-head competition between these two methods, some scientific evidence, like a drug trial, where we see, okay, we put these people on the debt snowball plan, and we put these people on the debt avalanche plan, and we're going to see who's kind of most successful at getting out of their debt at the end of six months or two years or what have you. I really think that it's like diets. Now, some people say the Mediterranean diet is the best. Some people say the Atkins diet is the best. I think at the end of the day, the best diet is the one that you can stick with. And if it's Atkins, then gosh, you should do Atkins. And if it's Mediterranean, you should do Mediterranean. If it's debt snowball, you should do debt snowball and so on. I guess I just haven't seen the evidence at this point that the debt snowball method is in fact more motivating, but my mind is open here. It's not that there's an evidence of absence, it's rather there's an absence of evidence. So you you work in a research institution. I think this could be your next project. You know, I once tried to get one of the largest debt collection agencies in Europe to run an experiment on the people they were trying to collect the overdue debts from on exactly this to try to suggest to, I don't, you wouldn't call them customers, they're, they're targets to encourage them towards a debt snowball or some other kind of method. We got fairly far along in our conversations. Unfortunately, they never pulled the trigger, even though I thought it was like completely in their best interest, their self-interest to figure out, hey, is there a way we can get people to pay back their overdue debts? So I think it's hugely important. I think it's hugely understudied. I'd love to do more in it and just haven't had the chance. What about in the world of investing? Where where does the advice differ in the popular literature from in the economic canon? Surprisingly, I think that both camps end up in somewhat similar places, but for different reasons. So both camps would say that you want to, in general, invest more conservatively as you get older. But the popular authors really emphasize this notion that as you increase your investment horizon in the stock market, stocks get safer and safer and safer. And there's even a, a strain in, of writing here where, the, where basically you're being told the stock market is just kind of guaranteed to make money if you just hold on long enough. And that's just not true. If you just look at the data, you know the Japanese stock market is still below where it was in 1989, and 1989 was a long time ago, it is absolutely not true that stocks are guaranteed to go up if you hold them long enough. Now, it's true that in the U.S., we have had a fantastic century of stock market returns, but to a certain extent, that is due to just some good luck that the U.S. has had over the last century, and there's no guarantee that that's going to continue going forward. That being said, economists do think that stocks are a pretty good investment option. And we do think that people who are younger 
should be more aggressive in their asset allocation. But I think that the strongest argument for that lies in what economists would call human capital, what ordinary people would say is your future wages. It turns out that your future wage income is probably the most important economic resource that you have, at least if you are reasonably young and of, of working age. And that's just kind of vastly bigger than any financial savings that most people have. And that wage income stream is actually pretty safe compared to the stock market. And that means that if you're young, you have a lot of wage payments left in your life going forward. And that is going to cushion you against any losses that you have in your financial portfolio. So you can afford to take a lot of risks in your financial portfolio when you're young because you have that buffer of wage income in the future. Now, if you're 60 years old, you don't have that many more wage payments coming to you probably. And so that means you need to dial back the risk in your financial portfolio because you don't have that wage income cushion that's as big as it was when you were in your 20s. So one of my books, James, is called Money Rules, and I'm bummed that it didn't make your list because money rule number one is that your job is your most important investment, which seems to line up with exactly what you're saying. I'm absolutely with you. And, and, you know, I've seen at least one colleague of mine spend a lot of his time kind of trying to execute complicated trades in his financial portfolio to eke out a little bit more money. And I thought, look, if you just invested in yourself and in your career, that would just have such a bigger monetary return to you than kind of these few dollars you're eking out of your trades right now. So absolutely, I'm 100% with you on that. One of the things I was wondering, we, of course, this podcast is called Her Money. We filter everything through the eyes and the lenses of the women who create this show and the women who, for the most part, listen to it. Some of the books that you read, I know, like my friend David Bach's Smart Women Finish Rich or Smart Couples Finish Rich, they're targeted to a specific group of people. Do economists do that too? Do you factor in gender or race or any other kind of life differences? To a certain extent, but I think mostly we kind of think about things like just how much risk tolerance do you have? What is your life expectancy? And then we will build recommendations off of those two things. And it just so happens that on average, those are different between women and men. So women do tend to be more risk averse than men are, and women do tend to live longer than men do. And so that kind of comes into play when we would recommend a savings rate or an asset allocation. Now, that being said, it so happens that, as I was saying before, economists do think that stocks have been a fantastic investment on average. And so we do tend to think that people are probably too conservative in their asset allocation on average. And so I think that even with the higher risk aversion that women have, the higher level of cautiousness that women have, it's probably not a bad idea to push your listeners towards a more aggressive asset allocation than they would instinctually veer towards. And part of that, I think, is that most people actually don't understand what the history of asset returns has been. So you kind of survey people, you know, what are the chances that the stock market will go up over the next 12 months? They are significantly more pessimistic about that than is warranted in the historical data. 
I want to dig into a couple of other buckets of information that people usually get. I want to talk about insurance and protecting yourself. I want to talk a little bit about emergency cushions. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that when we talk about the kind of advice that you get in a book, but what you're not getting from any book is advice that is specifically tailored for you. And our partner at Olin Financial Engines does that. They tailor investment solutions for you, for the wealth that you're building and growing and protecting. Their investment management approach is based on Nobel Prize winning research, and their planners do not sell products to earn commissions, period. So no matter where you're going next, see how they can help you get there. Visit planefe.com slash her money. I'm talking with James Choi, finance professor at Yale University. So again, we know that some of the most popular strategies for managing our money, or at least the most written about strategies for managing our money, are not necessarily the way that economists would do it. Emergency cushions have never been, I think, as understood to be as important as we understand them to be coming out of the pandemic. Where did the advice sort of shake out from this huge library of literature that you read through? And do you agree with the advice that you found? I think there is broad agreement within the popular author universe and among economists that people should have a substantial emergency cushion. So the most common advice is somewhere between three to six months of expenses. Some people even go as high as 12 to two years of expenses, depending upon how risky your job situation is. So I think that there's broad agreement there. I think there is a little bit of a contrarian streak among some economists saying, oh, you know, we see that there are a lot of people out there that don't have an emergency cushion, Maybe that's actually, surprisingly, the right thing for them to do. And, you know, it's because they're super impatient or because they're getting these fantastic returns on their houses. And so it's okay to be house rich, cash poor. I think that's a minority opinion. And I think I personally would say you absolutely need an emergency cushion. Life is just so much harder, so much more stressful if you don't have that emergency cushion. And in fact, I think it's a bigger mystery why people don't have an emergency cushion versus, you know, this question of whether people are undersaving for retirement or not. I think that's a very complicated question to know the answer to. But I absolutely think that people don't have enough of an emergency cushion. How big do you think it should optimally be? I think three to six months is probably a reasonable amount. Okay. And how about when it comes to protecting ourselves against the things that life can throw our way? I mean, when it comes to life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, there's some people who just don't even buy health insurance. What did you learn and where do you think that the advice is bad? So actually, that wasn't something that I covered in my paper. So I'll just kind of give some thoughts I have in general about insurance, which is that Hey, it's it's a good thing to have insurance. Economists love insurance. Like let's just let's just put it out there. Economists love insurance. Why do economists love insurance? Well, it's just a, a way for us to 
reduce the risks that we all face in life. And, and it's just kind of win-win where the people who happen to get some good luck and don't die early or don't have their house burned down, we cross-subsidize those people who get unlucky and who do die early or who do have their house burned down. So just this kind of great social compact that we have invented to reduce the unpleasant risks in life. And yeah, we just think that it's a good idea for people to have in general. And I think when it comes to you know life insurance or disability insurance, and those are, are two kind of really catastrophic events that could happen to anybody, early death or some kind of long-term disability. To get coverage for yourself is not only good for yourself if you're disabled, but it's also something that you do for your loved ones. I mean, just the burden that you can place upon your loved ones if you become long-term disabled or if you do die early, I think is just enormous. So it's an act of love, I think. I do think that on the long-term care insurance market, my understanding is that that market is actually very much dysfunctional and it's not clear that it's a good idea to buy that, even though in principle, it's something that you'd want. I think the market's kind of in a death spiral right now. Here's what I've learned about economists. Economists love insurance because you have a greater understanding of the risks in life. I think economists are trained to understand risks that a lot of us just stick our heads in the sand and refuse to look at. And for that reason, you can be more rational about the fact that these things are likely or not as likely to happen and that they may be worth paying for. That might be true. Actually, the funny thing, though, is when I asked my colleagues about how they made their personal financial decisions, it's actually kind of shocking how little thought that they've put into it. They kind of use some rules of thumb. And one of the rules of thumb is, hey, insurance is a good thing. We should buy some. But other than that, my fellow professors here at Yale at the School of Management, I don't think that they have necessarily engaged in the most sophisticated reasoning in managing the personal finances, which I think is pretty funny. What about you? How did doing this exercise and writing this paper change how you're managing your money, or did it? As I said, I I have some pretty strong opinions about these things, so it did not change the way that I personally manage my money. Also, my personal financial situation is relatively simple. I have a very secure job at a university that you know, is guaranteed for life. And so that makes that part of my life uncomplicated. I don't own a home. I rent. I'm very happy to rent an apartment. So that makes another portion of my life very simple. So my financial situation, I think, is fairly easy to figure out. I think there are many people out there who have much more complicated financial situations where I would have to really think hard about what they should be doing. Were there any areas where the popular books changed your mind? I think probably just in thinking about establishing like a discipline of saving, the the fact that this was such a ubiquitous piece of advice did make me think that, you know, maybe there's something to this, this notion that human nature is not such that you can just turn on the savings jets at age 35 and live a happy retirement having saved adequately Maybe you just do need to become the type of person who saves all the time, and that's what's going to let you accumulate enough over the course of your lifetime. So I think it's really thoughts about how what human nature is like 
that that maybe I, I had kind of the the most movement on. And this again going back to the debt snowball too. Yeah, the, this notion that motivation to stick to a financial plan is, is really important. So maybe next time you'll teach psychology. I do do quite a bit of psychology actually, because as you were saying in your introduction of me, I do do research in behavioral economics. So we have our little laundry list of psychological biases that we think are important for people's economic decision-making. It's just that there are certain types of psychological factors that we as economists haven't thought a lot about to date. And I think that this has to do with goal attainment, motivation, discouragement, where I think that we could do a lot more. And I think that these are important facets of the human experience. Sounds like a whole new body of research for you to pursue. James, this was a great conversation. Thanks for doing it with me. I found it a lot of fun. Where can we all find out more about you and about your work? You can Google James Choi Yale and you can find my webpage. And there are way too many papers posted there that you can read. You can read the paper that we have been talking about, which is at the top of my research tab on on the webpage, if that's what you're interested in. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. As we turn to our mailbag, let me remind everyone that Her Money is also supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that understands that financial freedom does not happen at one single point, but rather at many stages of life. That's why BCU is here today for your tomorrow with support available at every stage of your financial journey. You can learn more about eligibility at bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle is joining me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. So I got to say, I'm a little freaked out. I'm a little freaked out about the stock market after that conversation. Oh, the fact that he said we had a really good century. I think if you believe in innovation, I think if you believe in progress, I mean, if you look at the companies in this country, yeah, we had a really good century, but think about a century ago, we didn't have television, we didn't have cars, we didn't have, I mean, maybe we had cars. I don't exactly remember when the car was invented. Don't check me on that, people. We didn't have so many things. And look at where we are now, right? And the funding for so many of those things came from the markets. And by participating in the markets, you participated in all that innovation. Do you think that that innovation is going to just shut down, right? It's not. It's just going to accelerate. So I don't know that we'll see the kind of returns over the next decade, as we saw over the last decade, they've been pretty high. But I think historically, I don't know, I'm a believer. And I also think, where else are you going to put your money? Right. Right. No, it's fair. You can't beat those returns anywhere else. But I think that this is the fear that I think a lot of investors have is if you look at historical returns in the stock market, absolutely. But I do think there is always the fear that like, well, there's a first time for everything. Yes. A hundred percent. There's a first time for everything. And I think back on my conversations with Another economist, a guy named Mark Zandi, who is the chief economist at Moody's many years ago, 10 years ago, eight years ago, he and I had a conversation where he said, when you run a retirement calculator, 
putting 8% returns, 9% returns, 10% returns into those boxes, you are under saving. He said, be more conservative with the numbers that you are banking on, you know, bank on 5% returns, 6% returns. Then you're hedging your bets against those downturns. And I think being a little more conservative there makes me feel better because it gets my savings rate up. And so I think that, and I know we talked a little bit about psychology, I think that in addition to the habit of saving, the act of saving makes me feel safer and more secure. The fact that this is a part of my financial life that is under my control makes me feel better. And so for that psychological reason, I lean a little more heavily into the saving. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Makes sense. We have questions? We do. Well, to start, we actually have a note from a listener who calls herself trying to be patient in Oregon. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I love the Her Money podcast that I've been listening for several years. I also started listening to the Everyday Wealth Show. Thank you so much for all you do. You've done several shows in the last year around buying and selling cars with great guidance and information, but I wanted to share a related cautionary tale. My husband and I leased a car at the end of 2019 on a three-year term. As we considered whether to keep the car with a loan, buy it outright, or turn it in, I heard about the recent very high used car prices and the opportunity we had to sell this car for a profit. So we reviewed our finances to see if we could buy out the remainder of the lease and then turn around and sell the car. Before we took any action, we got a written offer on the car to make sure it would sell for more than the turn-in cost remaining on the vehicle. Turns out we would make around $5,000. So we did it. We bought out the lease, even expedited the title from the leaseholder in order to get it in hand while our offer was still valid. We walked in to sell the vehicle only to have them tell us that they couldn't take that title. We would have to go to the DMV and get the title in our names before we could sell it. Unfortunately, the DMV in Oregon is currently taking up to eight weeks to process a title transfer. We're still only four weeks into that time frame and still waiting. I'm sure we'll be able to sell our car and make money, but for anyone hoping to make a quick buck doing this, just know that it might not be so quick. So don't overextend your finances if you can't wait a few months to see the return on your investment. Thank you again for the great show. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that it does all work out for you the way that you are hoping it will work out. I don't think we're expecting any sort of a quick turnaround in the auto market. So I have a good feeling about this for you. But this is a glitch that never even occurred to me. So it's great that you wrote to just put it on the radar of all of our other listeners. And yeah, we are all going to be checking into title nightmares if we're trying to come off a lease and then sell a car. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. And this made me think of what happened to me at the DMV when I went to sell my car last month. New York State, as most states, require that the buyer has proof of insurance in order to go buy the car to transfer the title. So my buyer got her insurance, but her plan was to move the car from 
New York to Ohio. So the insurance policy that she had was Ohio insurance. New York State DMV did not accept that. So we ended up being at the DMV for an extra hour while she frantically called her insurance company to get insurance transferred from Ohio to New York, literally just so she could get the title in her name. And then they had to transfer the insurance again from New York to Ohio once they got to Ohio. So there's always something, right? There's always something that is <laughs> may hold you up a little bit. Right. And you shouldn't count on having the money in your pocket tomorrow, I think is the bottom line. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. A lot to think about. Maybe did we put all of this into an article at hermoney.com about if you want to sell a car, like all of the things that you need to think about, all the things that could go wrong? Like, I think maybe we do a story, five things that could go wrong when you're selling your next used car. Totally. I'm writing that down right now. Amazing. Okay, our question today comes to us from Sandra. She writes, I listen to your podcast every week and very much appreciate your topics and insights. Your recent divorce podcast was a timely topic for me. My husband unexpectedly moved out of our house while I was out of state taking care of my mother, and I did not find out until I came home a month later, just a couple of days before Christmas. I was home for a few weeks before I went back to caretaking until my mom passed, then stayed to help my father until late March. I've not had a career job since my mid-20s, and I'm almost 55 now. I raised our two children, ages 21 and 25, and took care of my sister for a few years until she lost her battle with cancer. I earned very little income, a few thousand dollars a year in dividends, but I took care of all of our finances, home care, maintenance, budgeting, so I'm clear with what our assets are. We have no debt. Our house and our one car are paid off. In February, my husband started working in Europe. He's had many jobs, most of which require a lot of travel. He doesn't earn a stable income. He doesn't have much in retirement savings and is not reliable for future payments. My question is about a possible tax scenario if I get the house in a divorce settlement and if I then sell the house. I think I would like to get the house and can afford to live in it another year. I need time to do some updating and figure out a possible job and living situation, and I don't want to uproot myself or my son without a good plan in place. I do want to sell it, though, before the current tax law expires at the end of 2025. We purchased the house in 1999, and it has appreciated significantly. We bought it for $400,000, and in our neighborhood, we could probably sell it for $1.5 to $1.8 million. I live in Boulder, Colorado, which has traditionally been a good market. I'll still have significant gains after the $250,000 deduction when $200,000 improvements and closing costs are accounted for. Would I truly be paying $0 capital gains rates if I file single and my income is less than $41,676? This would help me so much in building my future if I can get the house in the settlement. Thank you for your time. First of all, can I just say I'm so sorry, Sandy, for everything that you have gone through. I mean, it's been a terrible couple of years for you it sounds like. And I'm actually just really impressed that you are writing with a question with this much tax detail, because I think for many people, they would have closed their eyes and wallowed. And it sounds like you are not wallowing. You are really thinking about how to take your future in hand and move forward, which is exactly what you should be doing because 
at 55 or almost 55, you are young. You've got a lot of great time and the money that this house could put in your hands could give you the opportunity to get some new skills, figure out a new career and chart a path for your future, which is why I'm I'm very glad to say that, yeah, that is actually how it works. If you are single and your income is less then 41,676, you will not have to pay capital gains. You will qualify for the 0% capital gains tax bracket, which would allow you to take this money and use it like the windfall that it is. Really make a plan for it so that it can take you forward into your future. That means finding a financial advisor, sitting down and charting a course for yourself, not just this year, not just next year, but for the next couple of decades. Having read your letter, I have absolutely no doubt that you'll be able to do that. But if you have any questions, please give our partners at Edelman Financial Engines a call because they have the sort of holistic advisors that can 100% help you with the next phase of your life. And I'm so glad to be able to say, yeah, that is in fact the answer. So good luck. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jean. Absolutely, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, if you're about to be a parent and you're currently in the workforce, then you're probably very aware that America is the only developed country that doesn't offer federally mandated paid parental leave. Your employer gets to determine how much paid leave they give you. In some cases, it is not much. With women still taking on the majority of childcare responsibilities, it is no surprise that we often step out of the workforce for two years or more, sacrificing earnings, career advancement, social security credits, I could go on. Without federal protections, it's unfortunately on us to advocate for ourselves if we want to stay in the workforce and spend more time with our kids. At HerMoney.com, we are here to help you negotiate a longer parental leave. To start, research your company's policies and how they've enforced those policies over time. Who manages parental leave? Does the policy mention any flexibility? Have exceptions ever been granted and why? If any of your coworkers have taken parental leave before, reach out to them and ask about their experience. Next, Come up with a detailed plan for your leave that includes how much time you'll take off, who will take on your responsibilities, how you'll train this person, and what your transition back to work will look like. This will show your company that you're committed and confident that you can transition smoothly. You should also be ready to find a middle ground during negotiation. If your employer is not open to extending your leave with full pay, you could offer to work a part-time schedule. That could mean working three days a week, working four days a week from home, or doing one week on, one week off. Whatever you decide, make sure to set firm boundaries on your time so that you don't end up overworked and overwhelmed. And if your employer declines to extend your leave, You might have to leverage other company policies to gain more time. You could ask for unpaid personal leave of absence, use vacation days, or bargain for your company to let you use future PTO. It might not be ideal to borrow from the future, but it could be a good short-term solution to get more time with your newborn. 
Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to James Choi for giving us a look into the mind of an economist. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. We'll be right back.